Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Keep Left, the program of the Victorian Labor College. In the studio is John Lafferty. Morning, everybody. And myself, Chris Gaffney. Now, you're going to start, uh, John, on the... Um... Yeah, I was going to speak a little bit about the Dutch findings on MH17, but uh, Shirley Bassey, politically very incorrect, she played in Sun City, don't you know? Uh, yeah, Shirley, Shirley Bassey, who was just, she was just singing just before. Was she really? Yeah, and she was, um, she, she sang in the, oh sorry, yeah, Sun City in South Africa back in the apartheid days, even though it was a segregated audience, and Shirley is Welsh, but she's got a... Black background. Yes. Right. So there you go. Shirley okay. Bassey. Politically incorrect, I'd say. Anyway. Yeah, right, go on. Get, I'll get on to the Dutch findings on MH17. On Tuesday this week, the Dutch Safety Board released a 600-page report on the downing of Malaysian Airlines flight MH17, which took place on July the 17th of last year. Now, MH17 disintegrated over the war zone of eastern Ukraine, killing all 298 passengers and crew on board. At the time of this tragic incident, Western politicians and media were quick to point the finger at Russia, based on little, if any, evidence. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry explicitly laid the blame on pro-Russian rebels and the Russian government itself. In Australia, the then Prime Minister Abbott towed the American line. Opposition leader Bill Shorten followed suit with this statement, quote, I rise to support the words of Prime Minister Abbott. On a patch of disputed ground currently controlled by separatist terrorists lies the remains of MH17. Separate terrorists? Separatist terrorists. Right, yes. <laughs> I said that ten times quickly. Yeah. These separatist terrorists, said Shorten, are obtaining the instruments of murder from elsewhere. Russia carries a significant and central responsibility. Bill Shorten, that was last year. Shorten, Abbott, Kerry and their friends in the media made a very dubious connection in their haste to use this tragic event to ram up anti-Russian sentiment. The missile which the Dutch now say did bring down MH17 is a BUK, a book missile, made in Russia. Therefore, they are assuming that the Russians, and especially Vladimir Putin himself, are at fault. They ignored the fact that these missiles have been sold to both pro-Russian separatists and the Ukrainian government. They also ignore the fact that most weapons used in most wars around the world are American weapons, the US being by far the world's biggest arms dealer. Is US President Obama therefore to blame whenever American weapons such as those in Israeli or ISIS hands are used in the war? Usually, yes. <laughs> no, but you don't, you don't usually hear that. This is not to say that Eastern Ukrainian separatists didn't shoot down MH17. I'm not saying that. They may well have done so, but it's highly doubtful they will have done so deliberately. I just don't think it's at all in their interest, although that is debatable and we might get on to that later. Mm-hmm. The Dutch report, and it is only one report by one of the concerned countries, doesn't say who actually fired the weapon. Despite that, Western media and politicians have continued to skew the actual findings. Some have used the deaths of these 298 people to scream hysterically in a manner very familiar to those of us who lived through the Cold War. On Wednesday, the Herald Sun's front page stated, quote, 
Russian missile shot down MH17, unquote. Yet again, focusing on the manufacture of the weapon to beat up a story. And just in case you missed the point, an even bigger headline shouted, quote, Putin's rebels did it. Classic Mordic media never let the facts get in the way of a good story. The Dutch safety board didn't apportion blame, but the Herald Sun didn't care about that. They chose to quote from a man who was installed in a coup d'etat just five months before the plane went down. Arsenai Yatsenyuk is the president Ukrainian prime minister. He said this, quote, In our opinion, it was carried out solely from territory controlled by Russian fighters, and there is no doubt drunken separatists are not able to operate book systems. This means these systems were operated solely by professional Russian soldiers, unquote. Now, Yatsenyuk, who wouldn't look out of place in the Nazi party, is hardly an, an impartial observer. Uh, hardly, that's right. And you know the guy I'm speaking about. Yes, the, I the, do. The, the well, he, he, 30% of his government are actual outright proclaimed fascists. Yeah, I mean, and they make no secret about it. And he's, he's certainly that way. He certainly looks the part. Mm. He certainly acts the part. His perverted logic was, logic was once again used in Thursday's Herald Sun, the editorial this is, under the heading, quote, Putin guilty of mass murder. These comments all ignore that the Dutch safety board's main criticism wasn't actually against the Russians. It was actually directed towards the right-wing Ukrainian government. Kiev was criticised for failing to close the airspace to civilian aircraft over the conflict zone of eastern Ukraine. There have been many theories put forward as to who or what brought down MH17. The Dutch report has discounted some of these. For instance, the theory that the missile was fired from Russia itself has been dismissed by the Dutch. Also, the theory that it was brought down by fighter jets patrolling the airspace has been dismissed in this report. The report does state that the tragedy was caused by the firing of a book surface-to-air missile, but I've heard, but I haven't actually looked into it, that that is uh, disputed by... By some of the Russians. Well, started. apparently the Russians showed... showed. Uh, I saw some photos... Early on. Earlier on. Video. And it had... Um, uh, t- we were looking down on the plane and yes. there were lots and lots of bullet holes on the top of the plane, which suggests rather that the, 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 whatever, whatever hit the plane hit them from the top. From the in top. other words... So in other yeah. words, it was another plane. Well, now, the scene, now of the, book, the scene of the book missile actually goes up, I think it's 8,000 feet, is it feet? I'm not sure. But the big missile actually went above the cockpit, and I think it's, you know, it's like heat. It detects heat. It came above the cockpit, and then oh, uh, it sh- shattered just over into the left side of the cockpit. And th- th- this would... So, so they can explain that then? That, that's what they're saying. Okay. Yeah, that's what they're saying. Right. That's why okay. it, well, it, that it goes up, it, it comes in from the okay. front. Well, I was if wondering, that's true, then that would be an explanation. Yeah, as a, an explanation. I was wondering about that. But this was a very, very long investigation. You know, it really was. And I watched the 20 minutes of the explanation. And it, it was certainly interesting. Now, we could go into the initial cause of this civil war in the first place. Uh, the removal of democratically elected government by a US-backed coup at the start of last year. Russia responded to this action by acting in her own strategic, economical and political interests. Some people seem surprised that they would do that. It's an obvious thing for Russia to do. Uh, Ukraine is a neighbouring country. Ukraine used to be a part of the Soviet Union. They've been traditionally quite close. They got formal independence in 1954. Uh, 
Yeah, but only really became independent in 1991. Yes, I know, but they, yeah. they got some degree of... Oh, the republic within the Soviet Union. Yeah, though. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've had, you know, Russian, Soviet leaders, rather, Brezhnev and uh, Khrushchev, who were Ukrainian, more mm. or less, you know, so they're quite close. Pro-Russian septus in the east of Ukraine took up arms against what they, and I believe understandably, viewed as a neo-fascist regime being forced upon them. They didn't vote for these guys. Despite the Dutch safety board spending more than a year gathering and analysing evidence, the final report does not provide any evidence demonstrating who bears responsibility for the deadly attack. No evidence has yet emerged to justify the tidal wave of unsubstantiated war propaganda levelled against the Russian government in the immediate aftermath of the shutdown. The highly definite terms in which the Western powers cast their accusations against Putin have been exposed as politically motivated and highly dubious. Apart from the obvious who done it, there are still some questions which do need to be answered. Firstly, why are airlines such as Malaysian Airlines allowed to make their own risk assessments and consequently allowed to fly people over conflict zones? Mm. Is it just another example of big business dictating to the rest of us in their financial interests and to hell with the safety of even their own customers? Another question is, why was MH17 flying nearly 500 kilometres north of its usual flight path from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur? Malaysian Airlines at the time said it was an appropriate route, but many experienced pilots have stated that they would never have used such a route which took these people so close to the scene of such a bitter conflict. The fact that MH17 flew at a higher than usual altitude didn't help, as the missile, as I was just saying before, the missile was reckoned to have flown even higher right, again, because right. apparently they've been taught to fly higher and you'll avoid... Uh, avoid danger, yeah. Yeah, but well, saying now that no. Some are now saying that the plane was diverted owing to bad weather, but why wasn't this said at the time? I mean, the, the bad weather was at the time. You, you, you think they'd know this. Yes, I mean, yes. If, if Kiev Air Traffic Control had authorised this, had said this. Airlines in America and Europe were told three full months before the incident that they needed to avoid the war zone. But some experts say that operators continuing to fly over this area because it was the quickest and the cheapest route, profit-making being put before safety. Norman Shanks is a former head of security at the BAA Airport Group. He said, quote, Malaysian Airlines, like a number of other carriers, has been continuing to use it because it's a shorter route, which means less fuel and therefore less money out of their pockets. Let's no face it. Well, we, let's, let's face it. We know Malaysian Airlines last <coughs> year especially, the, 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 the lost one plane, another one gets blown out of the sky. Mm-hmm. Let's face it, Malaysian Airlines' recent record isn't very good. We may never know all the answers to this tragedy, but it is safe to say that while the pro-Russian side may have suffered the propaganda reversal, certainly in the Western eyes, the shrill rhetoric of the likes of Bill Shorten and the Herald Sun are a long way from the truth. Oh, very good, very good, John. Yes. Um, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I sound like a politician, at the, at the end of the day, you've got to ask for what what is the what would be the motivation for somebody mm. to shoot that plane down? Now, motivation doesn't actually prove anything. Um, a certain the fact that the Americans uh, had a motive in nine eleven, or that the Ukrainians had a motive in getting broader involvement into the Ukrainian dispute, is not proof. Mm. Is not proof. So I don't attempt to challenge anything you said. I thought that was a very Fair thing, but you still got to ask. 
at the end of the day, who would have a motive to do it? Now, clearly, the, it struck me that the one group that wouldn't have a motive to do it is the Russians. Well, the Russians themselves, but not the pro-Russian separatists. You believe that possibly that they may have had a motive in Well, I bringing... start by saying I don't know. Well, no, we don't I, know. No, I don't know. But uh, I, I, would have thought, I would have thought that the people who had the mo- greatest motive were the Ukra- Ukrainians. Hmm. Because they would want to involve the United States and and you, but as I say, that's not proof. And until we get more, until there's some more factual evidence that can actually allow us to point the finger, hmm. we should be careful of our speculation because that's exactly what we're accusing the Sun Herald and Bill hmm. disgusting short. Exactly. Well, Bill Shorten said that the very next day. Well, he uh, knew this man. This man. He knew about it. You know. He's absolutely disgusting man. Well, I wanted to talk uh, about the problems of Mr. Shorten which are, and the Labour Party, which are considerable. Not only do they have uh, the oh-so-glamorous Malcolm Turnbull, who, of course, is no different to Abbott, except he's not he's, he's quite so thick. He can string a sentence together. He can put a sentence together, and he doesn't come across quite so oafishly as, um, as Abbott. But uh, it's created a problem for Labour, and it's put the heat on Shorten. Because fifty, the Labour Party's got fifty percent of the vote, so they reckon that if election held, the Labour Party would get, after preferences, would get fifty percent of the vote. But Shorten is down in the manure as far as his reputation is concerned. But there's another challenge that the ALP has got to face. Not only a more attractive, at least superficially attractive, Liberal Party leader, uh, but. Uh, the fact that what's happening worldwide is that people are turning against economic liberalism. This is the sort of philosophy that arose in the 80s. It was embraced warmly by Keating and Hawke and continued on in full flush by all the subsequent liberal governments since. And we're seeing that this orthodoxy, which has prevailed over the last 35 years, is being challenged worldwide. And one sign of it is in America with... Bernie Sanders, the so, pretty soft socialist, uh, claimed to be a socialist, taking on some of the assumptions of economic liberalism, and also, of course, in Britain, where Jeremy Corbyn mm. uh, <laughs> has won a landslide victory in a ballot of members and supporters for the leadership of the UK party. The United, the United Kingdom political class, that is the Conservative parties, the press and the Blairite Labour Party, that is extremely right-wing Labour, mm-hmm. said that, oh, Corbyn is unelectable. Can't win, yeah. But they also said that he'd have no chance of winning the Labour leadership. So <laughs> what's their opinion worth? <laughs> they... But signs have been building for some time that the veil of discontent runs very deep here and abroad, and that's why Corbyn and other people like him could win. And the discontent is grounded in people's experience. In fact, the grand neoliberal experiment, which both our major parties embrace in social engineering, begun around 1980, based on individualism, you know, we're all little economic maximizers, free markets, well, it's failed. After three decades of cost-cutting, deregulation, privatisation, Australia has slower growth, greater inequality, ugly social divisions, degrading infrastructure sadly diminished cultural institutions and reduced personal liberties. The problem with extreme inequality is not, as the rich would have it, simply us being envious. It's that the very rich 
expect to run the world to suit themselves. And that's the assumption upon which the Labour Party and the Liberal Party proceed. We used to be able to afford health and education. These were, one stage, more or less accessible to everybody. There were decent minimum wages for all uh, and help for the struggling. We had a vigorous and independent ABC and we supported arts and culture of many types. We're told now we can no longer afford these things now that we're rich. In other words, the amount of wealth being generated in the last 30 years is fabulous by comparison with what? And yet everything that makes life worthwhile is worse. Mm. Our education is worse. Our health is worse. The ABC is eroded. uh, Unemployment has increased. Uh, Housing is now an impossibility for people. So we've got richer... Yeah, the society's got richer, but we, the vast mass of the people, vast mass have got poorer. The wealth is in fewer and fewer hands. That's right. In other parts of the world, the details are different, but the discontent is also rising. In South America, they're breaking away what they call the Washington Consensus that yielded debt bondage, instability and collapse in these countries. There are rising movements in the periphery of Europe against the austere tyranny of the European Central Bank, noticeably in Greece and Spain. Scotland rebelled against London's austerity and set the stage for Corbyn's rise. Uh, Bernie, the the American uh, uh, presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, is tapping the same vein. Behind these symptoms is a much bullshitted, if I can use that phrase, record of economic mediocrity and instability. Globally... GDP growth for over 100 years averaged 2.47%. Between 1960 and 1980, the average growth rate was 2.4%. From 1980 to 2005, it was under half that, at Mm. 1.1%, according to the US Centre for Economic Policy Research. In other words, economic liberalism has made us go backwards even in their terms, mm. even in terms of their ability to lift production and lift living standards. Well, it's like, you know, when they speak about privatisation and nationalisation, it's like you nationalise the gains and you privatise... No, sorry, you, you nationalise the losses, you privatise the gains. That's what that capital you know, like. sort of like, yeah, <laughs> feeding into that. Now, privatisation is not enriching us... It's not designed uh, uh, to it. It's not, and it's not... R- it's a windfall for, for venture capitalists. Yeah, not just... yeah. In Australia during the 1950s and the 60s, GDP, G, gross, democratic, uh, gross, gross domestic, domestic product, product sorry, mm. averaged a spectacular 5.2%. This is in the 50s and the 60s. Um, inflation averaged 3.3% and unemployment was at 1.3%. Mm. The post-1980 neoliberal era has never come close to any of those figures. Well, 5% is now considered to be zero unemployment. Well, that's right. But the worst part of the neoliberal record is the debt fueled instability. Recessions, financial crisis, even political collapse in Argentina. In 2007-08, these culminated in the global financial crisis, triggering the Great Recession that still lingers in the United States and Europe, reaching severe depression levels in Greece and Spain. The ideas underpinning neoliberalism are as deficient as its record. Its neoliberalism starts from the assumption that we are isolated, autonomous economic generators. 
and calculating individuals that we are not social beings, mm. that we don't rely on other people for our cooperation. They want us and to be atomised. That's right, to atomise, to think purely of yourself. The theory uh, by behind free market economics is laughably irrelevant. It presumes equilibrium when all around it is just change and instability. The ALP has been complicit all the way in the neoliberal project. Paul Keating set the pattern for parties that are supposed to look after the average punter, and this was copied by Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. By now, now of course, the Labour Party, they don't know what else to do, except to be little Tory-like people. You know, liberal light, the uh, ALP now stands for another Liberal Party, or Alternative Liberal Party. Ed Miliband tentatively tried taking UK Labour slightly to the left and got trounced. So the Labour Party reached a conclusion they can only return to being centrist, which is their term, which these days mean being to the right of Bob Menzies. But that's how they got into the mess in the first place, always on the defensive, always being wedged ever further right. And the refugee situation is absolutely classic, which is why when it comes to uh, dehumanising refugees, we have no choice because the Labour Party has completely cowardly capitulated to all the ideas, uh, all the ideas of neoliberalism. Corbyn, Corbyn, Corbyn's intention in England was to try and drag UK Labour all the way back to what it used to be, social democracy. I think it'll fail. The moderates of left of the old, suitably updated. The gambling of scaling the intervening rock barrier is what so alarms the myopic, timid souls of the British and Australian Labour parties. I mean, these people are gutless and personified. How is Australia served by having two Conservative parties? The ALP needs to listen to the average working-class person who have long felt betrayed and abandoned. Unfortunately, there's little sign that the ALP elite will will loosen their tight control of the party machine. If they do not they may find that they are being rapidly squeezed out of relevance by independents and minor parties. The, the, the author, Dr Jeff Davies, who's a commentator and scientist, he blogs at Better Nature, he says the view that his expectation is that within a decade the world will have changed dramatically and an ossified AOP will be a spent force. Come the day. Come uh, one, the day. <laughs> One of the things that I think is uh, sort of amusing, interesting about Bernie Sanders is that he can actually run for the Democratic nomination and even call himself a socialist. Because, the, I mean, the word socialist in the US is considered a dirty it's word. It's like by running as a pedophile, isn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen Colbert, the comedian, apparently asked him the question, don't you realise that socialist is meant to be an insult? <laughs> And he's still using this word, mm, you know, mm, so uh, I don't think he's going to get very far. But it is amazing that he can actually he's leading, be there. He's leading at the moment. Yeah, I think you believe Hillary will get the... I think eventually the, sheer money. Hmm. Sheer money. Clinton versus Bush. Well, that's... Just for a chance. Uh, well, of course it will. Just uh, something new. Hmm. The other little thing which I might mention just for a few minutes is the uh, Turnbull government is seizing on the shooting in Western Sydney by of a of a police accountant by a 15-year-old boy. Mm. We might add that no group, Islamic State of Iraq, ISIS, for example, no group has actually claimed responsibility for this. So there's no evidence to suggest, really, that it's anything more than a disaffected youth. 
Once again, a contrived and hysterical government and media campaign is being used to introduce previously unthought of and dreamed of measures that abrogate fundamental legal and democratic rights. The latest package, for example, will feature, quote, incitement of genocide, up to 28 days of detention without charge, greater electronic tracking of individuals or on control orders, and the use of secret evidence to detain individuals. Since 9-11 in 2001, Australian governments, coalition and Labor have imposed more terror laws than any other country in the world. The latest instalment will take the number to more than 60, and it includes at least six types of detention without charge or trial. So much for habeas corpus, which was, of course, the, the rule that forced courts, forced authorities to bring people to trial. You couldn't mm. detain people without trial. Well, I don't care much for the people that commit these crimes, but still, if these laws are brought in, and as you say, more and more of them have been brought in... Well, I don't think they How really... do we get rid of them? Well, they're not, and, and they're and, not and, designed for the... They're not designed for the odd terrorists, yeah. and they've been... They can, all really They can them. be used against the whole yeah, waterfall. Exactly, you know? exactly. This legislation introduced by Turnbull will go further than any legislation introduced by Abbott. So much for Mr. Moderate, Mr. Nice Guy, Mr. Reasonable, as compared with Mr. Turdhead Abbott. Because <laughs> um, this, new, this new bill will create powers to criminalise ever younger people, starting with teenage Muslims, on the basis of unproven suspicions by police and spy agencies. Now, I don't know if Malcolm Turnbull actually is that charismatic. I saw him the other day, he was picking his nose. Well, he's not, not, not very charismatic. Well, it is, must be to some... It is for the... Uh, well, he's speaking. It, it is for the people in the, who run the Australian and the Sun. We should note that these laws that have been produced by Turnbull were being prepared before the shooting in Parramatta. So... They'll give the impression, oh, well, you know, you've got these lung gun, we've got to have these laws. Turnbull admitted that the legislation had been in the works for some considerable time. I'm quoting him there. Control orders, which can last a year at a time, amount to detention without trial. They can range from full house arrest to many other restrictions, such as curfews, bans on accessing phones or social media. They can stop you travelling and they can make you wear a tracking device like a guide dog. The orders can be imposed simply because a police officer suspects, quote, suspects on reasonable ground that the order would, quote, would substantially assist in preventing a terrorist act. What the hell does that mean? Yeah, the thing is when a cop gets killed, I mean, there's always going to be something heavy result mm. from that. You know, they don't like it. Well, no. Well, <laughs> they don't like the wrong getting killed. No, no, no. It's and they will ensure, when they start shooting they'll ensure they come back. Yeah. Uh, Premier Bard had written to the term, uh, Baird in, in New South Wales, he wrote to the Turnbull government, asking for detention for up to 28 days with people, police able to question detainees through that period. Existing investigation laws already allowed the federal police to detain detainees for at least a week without charge. Now, this has been, cha- this has been increased. Uh, other types of imprisonment without trial introduced in, the, in Australia include secret questioning, detention by the ASIO, which can be extended for up to a week at a time, and secret coercive powers, including interrogation by the Australian Commission. All these forms of detention overturn hard-won and long-standing legal and democratic rights, including the presumption of innocence and habeas corpus, which is 
no incarceration without trial. So you yeah, can I, I, ju- I just I got this email from the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, during the week, and it was quite a good article about penalty rates. It was an article by Scott Fisher of Highgate Hill, Queensland. I'll just read it out because mm. it's uh, quite amusing and enlightening. Right. At 9.30pm on a Saturday, I rang the Restaurant and Cleaning Association, which argues that late-night loading should be stripped from the award. Mm -hmm. Its answering machine told me I had rung outside of business hours. I then rang Brickworks, which wants its workers to start at 4am instead of the usual 6am without penalties and wants to abolish weekend penalty rates. Mm -hmm. I was told by its answering machine that its offices were open Weekdays from 7am to 5.30pm. The Fair Work Commission's website... Uh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they can talk, right. The Fair Work Commission's website told me our assistance service operates between 9am and 5pm. <laughs> like any civilised yeah. person. Yeah. <laughs> Was this the 1950s? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It seems that none of these bodies is in any position to present a case or make a decision about penalty rates because none of them are prepared to actually walk these unsociable hours. Can I just throw in a couple of plugs here for uh, PIPSI, which is public interest before corporate interest, and the the Frankston branch of Pipsy is having a change of venue. They were meeting at the Frankston Library. Uh, now they're going to be meeting at the Mahogany Neighbourhood House, Mahogany Avenue in the Pines, which is North Frankston. And the next meeting is at 5pm on Tuesday the 27th of October. These meetings are once every two weeks. They also have them in the yes, um, northern yes, suburbs yes, yes. and Hastings. But I'm not sure of the address, but if anyone rings up, they can let me know. So that's the Mahogany Neighbourhood House, uh, 5pm on Tuesday 27th of October. And also... To help raise money to fund new programs for uh, families and young people from the Princess Hill housing estate, there will be a railway house trivia night on Saturday, the 31st of October. It's Halloween. From 7 pm to 11 pm at St Michael's Church Hall, 14 McIlwraith Street in Princess Hill, which is North Carlton. So that's a trivia night, 31st of October at 7 pm. Jolly good. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.